We are back in Romans. We're making our way through Romans bit by bit. We're going to be in chapter 11 this morning. And if you're visiting, you don't have a Bible on you or on your phone, uh, you can just follow the passage there in the bulletin. This is what I'm going to be looking at. Let me say this before I, I launch into Romans. Uh, just I'm going to call a spade a spade. I know that if you've, if you've been able to get here this morning and then you go home and you eat lunch and you kind of get into to whatever else, take your nap, don't take your nap, whatever. I know that around 5.30, 5.45, the thought of going back out, you know, the inertia is through the roof. I know that. Uh, I'm going to ask you to fight it this afternoon. And um, the reason is what we've got tonight is the installation of our new elders and deacons. And we, we've, we've done this on occasion as need be. It's not a, a regular thing that we do. But it really is a special time. It's a shorter service. Let all the people say amen. A shorter service than, than Sunday mornings. But, uh, but, but it really is amazing to watch that, that God puts on a church family's heart that we think, we think this man ought to be a, an, an elder or a deacon. And so a name is put forward. There's training and there's interaction with that person. And not everyone who was nominated went through the process. It was mostly because of someone just saying, I, this is you know, not a great season for me, maybe down the road, but not right now. But uh, these are all men that, that you put forward. They've been approved of by our elders. They've been trained. They've said they're willing to serve. And uh, it's not that they become more elite Christians or better Christians, but, but they take on a different role. And to become an elder or a deacon is not to make your life less busy. I'll tell you that. And that's not to say boo-hoo. It's just that that's how it is. That's part of leadership. So they, uh, I know they would value your encouragement, your presence. So I, just, I would ask you to consider uh, coming on back tonight. And I, I think that you'll be encouraged by that service. But I'll leave that with you. Romans 11, beginning in verse 1. That's where we're going to be. There's an ancient practice in the church. It's not observed by all churches, but it, it has a Latin name, Lectio Continua. Lectio Continua. And that's just a Latin name for preachers preaching through books of the Bible, portions of the Bible. And, uh, you know, that's not ordered in the Bible, but it's something that we're free to do if we want to. And that's a practice that we have here at Downtown Press. I like to go through books or through series. And... Um, you know, there's different benefits to that. One is that you get just the breadth of what the Bible says. You're not always in the same books or the same parts of those books. But another thing is that it keeps preachers honest, ideally. In other words, it's just going to make you deal with passages that you wouldn't naturally reach for to talk about. And boy, this morning is Exhibit A. And next week will be Exhibit B because... Romans is a daunting book. It's very full and dense and rich and it's just it's great. But chapter 11 may be the hardest one, and uh, depends on your metrics, but it's definitely one of, the, one of the hardest ones. And here's the context for where we are. Last week, we were in chapter 10, and chapter 10 is kind of a classic passage about what we call missions, evangelism. And Paul, you know, throws out all these, all these uh, rhetorical questions. You know, he, he's already led us up to this point where he has said, it, the sovereign God is how people get saved. We can't save ourselves. We said that at the baptism. A sovereign God does the saving. But then in the next chapter he says, but look, the way you're saved is by responding to this good news of what he's done. But how are people who haven't heard that going to believe? 
How, you have to hear this word to respond to it with belief. And how are they going to hear unless preachers are sent to them to, to proclaim this good news? So it's a real call to, call to service. Call, go share this good news all over the world. Paul did that. But this section of Romans is largely about Israel. If you've been coming, you've, you've heard this for several weeks now. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are really about ethnic Israel, the Jews. So you've got these themes coming together, and here's, here's Paul's reality. Um, he loves the Jews. I'm going to look at that more in a second. That is his heritage. He identifies himself as one in this passage. But he's also looking around saying, I've gone to them first to proclaim this good news, and the response is overwhelmingly not to believe. Some believe, but most don't. And, you know, if you were a Jew, like Paul, you grew up hearing the the prophets. The prophets and the the law, they've got these incredible... They talk about Israel in a way they don't talk about any other group of people. That they're the apple of God's eye. That they're His treasured possession. That, That they're set apart as this unique nation, and He loves them. And He's always going to be their God, and they're always going to be His people. And that's true, but Paul's looking around going, and like, the Messiah has come, and it's mostly rejection. So how do we, how do we fit all that together? These are His chosen people, lots of rejection of the Savior. That's Romans 11. Let's start in verse 1. I ask then... Has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, there's just nothing like these words. Uh, Your word is like apples of gold in settings of silver, but, but they're also hard for us to understand. And there's never a moment in our lives and there's never a moment in worship where, Abba, we don't need you, but, uh, but we feel the need for it as we come to difficult words, a difficult passage. So as we pray to you so often, Open up your word to us and open us up to your word, to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
some of you are, uh, are faithful worker outers. You're good about getting to the gym or whatever. And, uh, and some of you are not. And I'd like to read the names of, of each right now. Uh, but, you know, some of you really do set a good example. You're faithful about it. You go super early or you're always there after work, whatever. And um, for those of you who do this on a regular basis, I wonder if you've ever had this experience where you look around at this gym, you know, club, whatever, and, and, um, and you realize, wow, that person is here, let's say, at least four days a week, at least, faithfully here. And uh, you just see them there all the time. And, you know, you realize that I've been seeing them come that faithfully for years, and uh, they, they don't look that great. And it's like almost an epiphany of, does this actually work? You know, like I've read this stuff about cardio and strength training and your core and how it helps all these different things. And, and, and they're doing those things. And I, want to do, I thought I wanted to do those things, but I'm like, does, does this plan work? That, that's almost a little insight into, into Paul coming into this chapter because... And and really, I'm just restating what's already been said. He's trying to hold on to truth, kind of coming at him from two different directions. And truth is never at odds with truth. On the one hand, you know, he grew up Jewish, devout Jewish, not kind of Jewish. So he knows how the Bible talks. Really, when I say how the Bible talks, how God talks about Israel, ethnic Israel, the Jews. They are my people. I will be their God. They are my treasured possession, like no other nation. So amazing to be Jewish. So, so there's that. But he's also hanging on to his experience. You know, and I've mentioned this before. If, if any of this sounds anti-Jewish or too hard on the Jewish people or anti-Semitic, not only does Paul start the book by saying, look, the gospel is not for Gentiles first. Now, there's a lot of Gentiles responding to it. The gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Whatever the ratios are of believers, that's the order. And he practiced that. When he went into a city, he wouldn't wouldn't go out in the country. He mostly went into metro areas, city centers, and the first place he would go is not the street corner. It it wasn't the, the free speech area. Where did he go? The synagogue. Like, start with the people who've heard the law and the prophets and say to them, I've come to tell you about the man who fulfills every word of this. I've come to tell you about who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent. And as he's doing that, some Jews believe. But most don't. Over and over and over. So how do we reconcile these two things? That's the passage. Now, here's what I want to look at, break this down kind of in, in three strands. First, the people, meaning the people of God, Israel. Then the remnant. Paul used that term in this passage, and that has a particular meaning, the remnant. And then thirdly, the lessons for us, because I'm, this is mostly a Gentile demographic. And, and Greenville is mostly a Gentile demographic. So what are the lessons even for, for this room? All right, so first off... The people, um, when, when, and I, I mention this all the time, in the Bible, in the Psalms, when people is used as a singular, that means Israel. There's the peoples and the people. There's the nations and the nation. What does Paul say? He says, all right, on the one hand, 
he identifies with them and speaks very favorably about them. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, totally identifying himself with them. And then what does he say? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In other words, the plan you see in the Bible is still on. Still plan A, still in place. On the other hand, what else? Look in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And what does that mean? And this goes back to, actually, to early... uh, uh, latter part of chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10, Tim Udodge preached on this a, a while back. What was Israel seeking? To be the people of God, to be right with God, to know that their sins are forgiven, to be His treasured possession, to know that they are loved by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to know that they're righteous in His sight. That's what they saw. And what does Paul say? They don't have it. They don't have it. And he uses something that may have been troubling to you when you heard, when you heard it. It says that the elect were saved, but the rest were hardened. Now, I preached on this back in the fall, and you can go look on the podcast and listen to this if you want to from Romans 9, but let me just... A little sound bite. When the Bible talks about God hardening people... It can't mean that he reaches into the heart and rewires somebody that wanted to believe, wanted the mercy of God, and makes them not not want it. Biblically, the way God hardens a heart is simply not to intervene. And this is how Paul starts Romans, that the trajectory of every human heart, Jew or Gentile, is not neutral. And it's not good. He says that specifically. No one is good, Jew or Gentile. The trajectory is to be hard toward God. And really, flowing out of that, hard toward other people. To change that takes God's intervention. But for that to go deeper and deeper, get harder and harder, takes no intervention on God's part. So what's he saying? On the other hand, that's going on with the Jewish people. I'll give you one snapshot of that, even in our own day. Every generation sort of has uh, churches that a country will look at, and it's sort of a, a go-to church. What I mean is there's churches that it seems like God uses them, that they have a big impact, and so we study them and we watch them to try to learn what's going on in our culture, how do you minister the gospel in our culture. And it changes. I mean, the, the go-to churches, the golden standards change over time. I'd say that one for the last 10, 20 years or so, at least in our circles, has been Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And I'm not not saying any church is perfect, but it's been kind of a test case for how to minister the gospel in big urban settings. It's in Manhattan and in greater New York City. And um, a few years ago, I saw the result of an in-house sort of study, an in-house inventory of the church's ministry, where they said, like, what are we doing well? What's not so great? Where are we making inroads? Where are we not making inroads? And they had scored these things and scaled it, And as I recall, the least amount of inroads, the the least amount of traction in the city was among Jewish professionals. Now, 
again, I'm not citing that to sound anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic, believe me. But it's to say, this, <clears throat> that's not an old phenomenon. Excuse me, that's not a new phenomenon. It's very old. It's not uh, a new problem. It's, an old, it's what Paul bumped into. People of God, a great hardening. So then what else? Right, that's the people. What, the remnant. Paul uses this term, the remnant. Look in verse, uh, verse 5. He says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's a remnant chosen by grace. That term remnant is sort of a technical term in the Bible. It shows up in the prophets. It's either used or referred to through the rest of the Bible. Think about it this way. We've been saying plan A, God's plan A for His people doesn't stop being plan A. And Paul affirms that. God has not rejected His people. But here's the thing. In plan A, it's never been the case that every individual got it. It's never been the case that among God's people, every single individual got it, believed, saw his or her need for mercy, and cried out to God for it. There's no point in the history where every single individual does that. And there's no point in the, in the history where no individuals do that. It's never everybody, and it's never nobody. When you've got the minority, this group, sometimes it's larger, sometimes it's smaller, but when you've got this group that gets it, They're not just God's people externally, but they're God's people on their insides. That is the remnant. And this, to show you how old this is, before there there were all these Israelites, think about when there was just the man Israel. You've got Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name has changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. That's where those 12 tribes come from. Just when it was the sons, not all the people yet, Think about, were all 12 of them just God-fearing, wonderful, obedient, mercy-loving people? Well, if you read the history, almost none of them were. Joseph gets it. Maybe his younger brother Benjamin maybe gets it. Maybe one other brother, but it seems like the majority of them don't get it. Already you're seeing the pattern. Paul uses two examples in the passage of what he means by this remnant uh, this remnant pattern. One is pretty obvious. The other one's kind of sneaky, the example he uses. He uses the example of Elijah, foremost prophet. Look in verse 2. Second part of verse 2, he says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now, if you don't know that story... Just real quick, this is in the book of 1 Kings. And Israel has just gone hog wild with worshiping a false god. It's an idol named Baal. And they've got Baal altars, and they've got Baal clergy, and they've got Baal rituals, and they're doing them. It's wicked. And Elijah is hanging on to the truth. He really believes that God is who he says he is, and he's trying to minister in his name. 
and there's this big showdown where it's Elijah versus all the priests of Baal and God vindicates himself. But Elijah had massive uh, dejection. I mean, we would call it depression. And there's a point where he says to God, you know, really, I'm the only one that's left. And just going from Old Testament to now, you may have felt that before. I mean, you may... I hope you don't feel it like right now, like you're the only Christian in the room. Because I am a Christian too. But, but, I, you know, but I'm, I'm talking more like uh, maybe, you know, you look back on people you went to church with. or it, I know that's not everybody's background, but maybe it's yours. Or maybe you were in a, a, a youth group in church or you were in Young Life or whatever. And you look back and like all these people that you thought were in, you just kind of seen the wheels come off and you're sort of looking at God like, am I the only one left? Well, when Elijah said, I'm the only one left, what does God say? This is a quote from the Old Testament, verse 4. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, which is kind of great. I'm the only one left. There's 7,000 others. (laughs) That's always been the pattern. It's It's never been everyone, and it's never been no one. Now, Elijah was one of Paul's examples, but did you catch the other example he used to make his point about the remnant? It's so subtle you can miss it. Look at the beginning of the passage again. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. What is Paul saying? How do we know that God continues to bring ethnically Jewish people to Himself? He said, I'm proof. I hated this sect, this Nazarene sect. I was having people arrested in the synagogue and brought before the council. I was casting my vote against them for their lives to be taken. I thought that I was doing that to preserve pure religion, pure worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then I met Christ. And I'm now part of that remnant. He'll still identify himself as an Israelite. But I'm in the new Israel who's met the Messiah, believes on Him by faith. And, 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 and let me say this just so, so this is said. It doesn't take God's intervention for us to be hardened. That's how we show up. I mean, I, you're... If you're mildly self-aware, that probably rings true anyway. But what takes God's intervention is for there to even be a remnant. It takes a remnant. It takes God's grace for there to be a remnant. For someone to look to Him and say, Have mercy on me. I cannot save myself. I cannot cleanse myself. So what are the lessons for us? Because again, um, and this may not be true of every individual, but just... The demographics of Greenville is overwhelmingly Gentile. The demographics of this room, I would say, overwhelmingly Gentile. So what are the lessons for us? I'm going to throw out a couple of things. One is this. If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, have have you ever seen yourself getting mad at someone for not believing in Him? Have you ever looked in your own heart and realized, I'm getting angry with somebody for not believing in Jesus? When we do that, and I have for sure done it, 
what are we showing about ourselves? And I want you to look back at the text again. Verses 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But get this. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Because here's the deal. It's really easy to talk a good game about grace. Oh, it's grace. God has to do it. God has to do 100%. But there are just these little sneaky things in our hearts that really when you peel the layers back, we kind of feel like, you know what, I got it because I just think I've always been a more open person. Or I, think, I just think I was teachable at that moment. Or, you know, I, I really, I think about these things deeply. I've always thought about these things deeply. Well, you know what that is? Those are versions of merit. And God's Word rings like a bell. No one is saved by merit. No one is saved by preconditions. If you come to see that Christ is the answer to my sins, that is the grace of God. And we show our hand when we get irritated with people. That Why, why aren't you a Christian yet? You know what we're showing about ourselves? Why can't you be clever like me? If you're in Christ, you're part of the remnant. You're the remnant in the new covenant. But if we're in that, it's because God was very kind to us. And if He's been patient with us, maybe we could be patient with co-workers, family members, old friends. That's the first thing. Um, but lastly... It's just encouragement and hope for our efforts in sharing the gospel, whether that's locally, you know, in an office, or whether that's all the way across the world. I don't know if you've ever heard this parable. Uh, this is the parable of the two umbrella salesmen. It's not a famous parable. It's not a biblical parable, the, the parable of the, of the umbrella salesman. And this is kind of one of those things you might hear like at some 1980s, you know, sales meeting or something, but... It, it basically it goes like this. You've got these two men, and they sell umbrellas. You know, this is pre-internet, so you've got to hit the pavement. And they sell umbrellas, you know, out on the sidewalk, and, um, and it's in a place that, where it rains all the time. So maybe it's Seattle. I don't know. And one of them is kind of a glasses-half-empty person, and one of them is very much a glasses-half-full person. And so the glasses-half-empty person goes, you know, it rains all the time. So I can't sell them because I, I can't get to the people because it's raining. And then when the weather finally improves, they're so glad, you know, they're off doing other things and they forget about the rain. I, I can't win. And then you've got the glasses half full person. You can feel where this is going. You know, and he says, oh, man, business here is phenomenal. It rains all the time. I've got the just built-in market of, of a lifetime. And then occasionally, you know, it's sunny enough that I can these things just fly off the shelf. I can't lose. All right, corny sales parable, but there's sort of a kernel of truth to it. I mean, think about, the, it's, it's an example of two people looking at the same data and interpreting it differently. Same circumstances, same data. When you think about the fact that there's always been a remnant, there's different ways for that to land inside of us, you know? Because if you're more, more of a glasses half-empty person, what you can use that to do is to say, okay, well, there you go. There you go. I've already encountered this, that just hardly anybody ever seems to believe. 
and now you've given me the biblical name for it. It's everybody that's not the remnant. Thank you. Kind of true, I guess. Pretty true. But what would be another way to interpret the same data? All right, it's never been the case that every single person gets it. So, whether it's downtown Prez or area churches, when they send missionaries to other parts of the world, and there's not just mass conversions left and right, and like the whole city does not come to saving faith in Christ, we don't have to go, all right, well, you know, pull their financial support. It's kind of always been that way. That lots of people don't... It was that way when Jesus taught. And whatever's wrong with our methodology and our character or our way of expressing ourselves, His life and His message were seamless, watertight. Nothing He said or did undermined the power of the gospel. And most people did not believe Him. But in the same way that it's never been the case that everybody believes, it's never been the case that no one believes. Even in the darkest times of Israel. and the darkest times of the church. So what does that mean? You know, it means that we can put ourselves out there. And for you, that might mean that you actually take the message of Jesus Christ to another country. Or it could mean that you stay right here because God's calling on you is right here. But as you are salt and light, and you relate to your sphere of influence, these friends, these neighbors, these co-workers, and you're being who you are in Christ, that not all of them are going to be converted. Again, I I don't want to discourage. It's very likely that a bunch of them will not come to you and go, wow, there's just something different about you. Please tell me what it is so that I can become that too. But you never know how God's going to use you. You never know who's about to be saved. God can save anyone. Paul would have said, if you need proof, look at me. God doesn't call you, and God doesn't call me to produce results. Aren't you glad He's not like that? Aren't you glad that God is not looking at us going, what have you done for me lately? How did you go on that beach trip with your family and not get some conversions on the beach? Go back and do that before you expect me to bless you. Now, aren't you thankful that God is not like that? That God says, look, be faithful. And I'm going to love you when you're unfaithful, which is constantly. You leave the results to me and my plan and my wisdom, and you be who you are. You tell your story as you go, and you leave the results to me. I will always be saving people, Jew or Gentile. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, great God and Father, that you have always been saving people that you have saved people from the Jewish background, that you have saved Gentiles who knew no God or knew different gods. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the grace that lets a group like us be here and actually be able to say that we know you.
and love you and that we follow you and we want the Messiah to be known all over the world. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use us, you'd use downtown Prez, the churches of our city, the churches of the world to make Christ known everywhere. We would pray to you that in your mercy that more men and women and children would become Christians in Greenville this year than in any year in Greenville's history. Through whatever means you choose, that you would bring them to yourself and they'd be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.